and welcome to Global Digital Futures Podcast, brought to you by the SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipo Mapondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we're speaking to lecturer Matti Pohinen about research and technology in hard-to-reach locations. Matti is an academic working at the intersection of digital anthropology, philosophy, and data science. His work developing innovative research methods for hard-to-reach populations has taken him from Kenya and Ethiopia to India. Now he's back at SOAS and is a lecturer in global digital media. Hi, Matty. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So can you start by telling us a bit about your work in Africa and India, please? Okay. So uh, if you look at contemporary digital cultures, and uh, there has been a lot of change that has been happening in the last, let's say, 10 to 20 years. And I'm, uh, I guess, unfortunately old enough that mm-hmm. uh, I started doing my PhD work in the early 2000s. I started doing field work in India at that point in mm-hmm. 2004, 2005. And so people who have grown up in the social media environment, yeah. they don't really remember the early days, but yeah. that was pre social media. So at that point, things like blogging were the big craze in uh, the idea of global digital cultures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so a lot of the things that we see today were still evolving. And so I was doing field work actually in international news production Mm -hmm. in uh, India. And I was interested in how uh, global information flows affect news production at the local level and how information becomes localized and increasingly given the digitization of how this happens. So how uh, global news, international news becomes translated and uh, how news organizations are increasingly using digital technology. Technology mm-hmm. to do this process and so simple stuff like accessing information and uh, accessing news news articles and accessing images and so I started getting in that and at that point there were two major developments that happened and uh, one of them was blogging became a very big yeah. thing and mm-hmm. the whole idea of citizen journalism and so I started part of my research I started getting in, interested in working with a lot of uh, kind of cutting edge slightly off the beat bloggers in India and uh, so that's when the Asian tsunami happened in 2004 four two thousand five. Okay. So there was a big crisis that happened in uh, especially Sri Lanka and there were a lot of uh, destruction that happened because yeah. of the waves that hit. And so a lot of the bloggers activated very quickly and yeah, they started doing yeah. a lot of work around citizen journalism using mobile phones to transmit information out of the crisis struck areas. Okay. And this very uh, kind of cutting edge use of uh, technology in a way to try to bring information from the ground up and also, yeah. also at the same time challenge maybe the dominance of some of the kind of old new established sources. new sources. And yeah. So there's a lot of kind of conflicting things going on at that point and in including things like I've one of the key findings that I found that Google had become one of the key factors in news production. Interesting. So at that of, time? At that point. So a lot, of, a lot of journalists were dealing with like local Indian news channels. So they were using Google to find images for their articles. And, okay. and again, very kind of ad hoc way. And it was, yeah. and so at that point, it started becoming very big. And so in the, the reason I started kind of like the old school stuff is that then I have been getting interested in developing that ever since. Yeah. So post PhD, for many reasons, including the fact that I grew up in Ethiopia, I started going to Ethiopia. And so what I've been interested in is always at this kind of uh, emerging, the idea of emerging digital, digital culture. cultures. So yeah. At that point, it was blogging. Twitter was coming at age in India. But then when I went to Ethiopia, being a country with very limited internet access, I yeah. started getting interested in mobile phones. And so I started working with, with mobile phones in the Ethiopian context. And we did some pilot work around uh, kind of how mobile phones potentially can affect rural populations in Ethiopia. And what years was this? This was around 2008, 2009. Okay. So this was, again, Ethiopia, things just slowly emerging. Yeah. 
slowly merging into and um, you're getting first time you get mobile connections and uh, so I did some I there's a book chapter I wrote on that some on terms of like environmental activism and use of mobile phones and in Ethiopia in Ethiopia okay. at that point and so f- through many different uh, kind of coincidences and I got in, interested in another project which mm. again um, we are dealing with like the slightly out of ordinary development in digital culture so yeah. Ethiopia with at that point about three to four percent internet penetration rates this was 2010 and so I started working for Oxford University on a major project on social media hate speech okay. in Ethiopia. And again, the idea of um, kind of social media conversation politics very dominant in the European context, but nobody had really bothered to look at Ethiopia where there was there was only like three, four percent. However, it had played a major role in the kind of ethnic conflict and the politics there. In what way? So uh, in terms of Ethiopia has always had a very kind of a contested uh, political system. And so the government, a lot of the opposition voices had been very innovative in the use of limited technology to bring, bring kind of alternative voices and the government had a very strong crackdown then right. on press freedoms and so social media had emerged as the kind of space where you potentially could have some conversations and um, especially linking the diaspora and, and the connections there. So then uh, social media was perhaps the space where that conversation was still being had. But among a very small percentage of the population. Uh, uh, but at the same time, it's a small population, urban, middle class, uh, educated. But it did have two impacts. One of them was that it's the opinion leaders in a way. So they're the ones. And a lot of the stuff in terms of that was produced in forums and in um, social media and in online websites were also printed. Okay. So yeah. there was this kind of relay effect to also beyond the, the kind of immediate social media. So, yeah. so it was a very kind of a unique, um, very distinctly different type of yeah. uh, social media conversation. So we worked for a couple of years on online hate speech and found all kinds of interesting things around there. And so it was again how to develop theoretically, methodologically, how to understand in a country like Ethiopia. So I then yeah. um, did a lot of work on trying to look at comparatively between different digital cultures in different parts of the world and yeah. what the differences are. And part of the work was working for an organization called Africa's Voices Foundation. Mm-hmm. Where are they based? So it was an organization that was launched out of University of Cambridge. Right, But then yes. it was based in Nairobi. And the organization, working slightly more in the non-governmental sector, was okay. trying to develop methods of trying to reach these hard-to-reach populations, places like Somalia or rural Kenya or Uganda. And so using things like interactive radio, mobile phones, uh, different ways of using like data analysis or languages that have not been as served by it. So we combined a lot of work with computational scientists and uh, yeah. and researchers and so on and so forth and did work for like UNICEF and uh, Oxfam and some of the major organizations as the kind of intelligence yeah. gathering trying to listen to people's voices in their own own kind of idiom and own kind of vernacular. Okay. So, yeah, kind of diverse, yeah. So it's interesting that you touch on um, the organizations that you were working with. Um, so, uh, when we think of digitization or digital projects in you know hard to reach areas um Recently, there was a talk by uh, Vice President Mohamedou Baumia on the importance of developing soft infrastructures in order to start these digitization projects. So his example of soft infrastructures was national IDs and also digital records of addresses. So can you describe the necessity of such soft infrastructures in um, sight of your research and what did this impact have on your studies? So I guess Kenya would be an interesting example is uh, if you look at the kind of digital development in Kenya, it's quite different what we see as a common trajectory, especially mm-hmm. in the Western context. And yeah. So one of the classical examples would be uh, M-Pesa, yes. which is a mobile-based uh, banking transfer system, payment yeah. system that that has, in a way, leapfrogged some of the old earlier kind of dynamics of having banking systems and so because that kind of 
that kind of infrastructure of identification, people having having ID numbers, having that doesn't yeah. really exist. So, the one of the challenges in terms of like digital development or development in general is to be create a system of uh, knowing who people are because Ethiopia itself. Don't quote me if I'm wrong on this one, but the population itself varies around 10 million, depending who estimated. Okay. So people really don't know how many people live yeah. there. So yeah. it becomes a massive logistical challenge of who are the, in fact, all the people. Yeah. So if it's, uh, so CIA estimates a certain number, and then if you're some organization, so there's like a 10, 10 million variance of yeah. even how many people would, would live in the country. So the... So in order to get into like, and this goes to like micro businesses, it goes mm-hmm. into like simple stuff like banking, being able yeah. to register. If you don't have that level of identification that people don't know even who you are. Yeah. So it creates a complete absence of trust. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. uh, you have to go through manual, multiple process of verification to know that you can trust trust who the person is because you get all kinds of, yeah. of course, corruption, different yeah. ideas, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And all that stuff. So I think in a way what the, the talk about digitizing again and economy was that it's important to create this kind of base level yeah. of trust that you know that the person that you're talking to is in fact has a, is a person and he lives somewhere. And yeah. so then the consistency of being one person can then lead to things like we can get a bank loan. Yeah. Because so it has happened in different ways. And in Ghana, they're doing it very systematically by the government. Yeah. In other countries, in Ethiopia, they were doing something similar, very state led, which hasn't been as far as I remember, no, it hasn't gone as far. But in Kenya, it has happened like the M-Pesa system has created yeah. a similar. So the trust has not happened through the government necessarily, but by linking individuals to uh, their phone, their, yeah. their kind of phone bank combination, yeah. and thus being able to do a complex transactions. And, and the idea there is that if you have this system of soft instruction in place, then all kinds of other things can develop. Absolutely. And I imagine for research, it is really important to also be able to follow and track like your research and the subjects, etc. I mean, well, I mean, tracking is a quite a strong word to use. It of, uh, <laughs> tracking. It's. Uh, I think that's what uh, some other people like to do. But so, I mean, it is. It is methodolog- methodologically. You need to. Uh, if you talk about large population, large yeah. uh, numbers of people, you need to uh, tie them to a certain identifier. Right. So, I mean, the best way to do it is you tie them to a phone number. Okay. So again, it's a bit more tricky phone numbers because then multiple people might be using the same phone. Yeah, yeah, So true. then in places that phones are not a luxury, you might have three, true. four people using the phone yeah. for various purposes and at various times of the day. Yeah. So again, that there's still co- kind of com- complex issues around how to justify or ju- how to kind of verify Manage if it's that. actually individual who's using it. So there's like dynamics of men tend to use it during the daytime, whereas yeah. uh, women have certain hours and then kids might use it or young people later and... And so that's itself already an interesting research question. Yeah, but yeah. So I mean, it's, did you have some of questions like that playing into your research? In my research, uh, we did use in the social media stuff. It's very easy because I mean, the key question is: is the person that they claim to be actually mm-hmm. the person that they are? Yeah. Because a standard issue or a common issue in social media research that that do pe- people are people the real people that they claim to be? Yeah. Or are they just performing some identity for yeah. a purpose? And, and you have all kinds of government trolls and fake accounts and yeah, things. And yeah, yeah. So, um, but then you have to take it at face value. You can't go too much in that. In terms of doing the the research on the hard to reach populations, we did play a lot of, lot of combination of uh, kind of phone phone based or mobile phone based research, but also having having uh, focus groups and other things to kind of try to get yeah. different different understandings. But in a way, it's more about and how how to understand how segments of population 
think of that. It's not really how individuals, so it's, it's about yeah. trying, trying to get broader trends. Yeah. Because that's what people are interested in. But yeah. So I actually did have a question on how the data then is managed or the information that you get is managed. Because, you know, you do have questions of data security, but that's not only in terms of a human breach of security. What about the infrastructure to make sure that your data is stored safely and it's not corrupted or lost? So um, I'd say question is not necessarily as much about infrastructure, but it's about human human capital. Okay. That the infrastructure for doing anything encrypted and backups and everything is in place, but then the weak link is always the person there. Okay. So, I mean, uh, we did... Uh, when we are dealing with reasonably sensitive information around uh, social media hate speech politics in Ethiopia, we did have a, a kind of a data strategy in place where we tried to keep everything outside, uh, keep everything so that they wouldn't be easily accessible to people who might not be, uh, or people who should not necessarily be seeing that information, yeah. even though it's pub- mostly public data. Yeah. And so, but yeah, we did, we did find out afterwards that we did have minders probably following us when we we're doing the research, even though we we're collaborating with the university there and we have even government collaboration at that point but again it's uh, it's a very complex uh, yeah. issue that's how things happen usually and you just have to accept it and so there are a lot of organizations that teach this kind of data management yeah so the knowledge is there it's just a matter of I- implementing like but there are organizations within those hard to reach regions or so the inform- I mean basically when you do research on like hard to reach reach populations you do things like mobile based research so the data okay. will come to Nairobi or it won't okay. so the data won't be stored in um, in uh, those remote locations right so okay. it's more like the end yeah. point of me asking the mobile is the, the channel of being able to ask questions yeah but so in, in that sense, it's more about how to manage the mobile data and, and how to keep that. So that's what I was quite interested in. Like, how does that work? Because, yeah, if you're not if you're in a place where there's no Internet or there's or limited Internet, no hard drives or, you know, other advanced hardware, how would you manage that? So, I mean, so mobiles, basically, you can set up a system where you communicate via mobile, so the mobile is the endpoint. So the communication okay. goes back and forth, and so the central central uh, storage will be, let's say, Nairobi. So then that's not really an issue. Okay. So the question is more: How do you then reach people who are beyond the internet? Beyond, so you okay. have people who reach live in areas that don't have electricity, for instance. And yeah. I mean, there is a lot of again. This is where it gets interesting is that even though we think that the digital society ends at the maybe maybe the level of electricity. Yeah which cuts about, I don't know, half the people outside yeah. the world outside it. Yeah. There's still, people still communicate outside those things. So, yeah. so things like uh, you have solar batteries where you can have a phone without having electricity. That's quite common yeah. in some parts. Yeah. So people, they're like little entrepreneurs have set up solar batteries. You pay them a little money, you charge your phone and so you might still have network connection. Absolutely, yeah. Without electricity. And, and some of the more innovative stuff that I've been kind of following following that people have been doing is you can also create all kinds of uh, outreach programs by using memory cards of mobile phones. Okay. So if you take like a nomadic population in northern Kenya. Yeah. So if you want to get them to some educational material, but there's no other way of reaching them, then some of them will still have phones. So you um, you create this um, memory cards and you stick in the phone so you can still use the phone as a as a kind of... Yeah. A, so there's a lot of things that can be done that even goes beyond just uh, when you're saturated with uh, social media and uh, 
hyper fast <laughs> smartphones and connections, you would never think about this. Thing. You forget there's a world out there. <laughs> one of my one of my first ever Twitter updates was from a town in Ethiopia where I said uh, I'm now on Twitter. I don't have electricity, but I have candlelight. But the the phone worked. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And uh, we had a car battery that provided energy. And where was the like 3G there was no network? Th- no 3G. There was not. No, it was just text based. Okay. Or so kind of you could. Yes. You could, yeah. You can okay. still communicate with Twitter by text at that point. Yeah. But can you still do that? Oh, you can. I have no... Yeah. I'm sure you can, but... Interesting. Okay. So, um, what are some of the moves for such populations to become easier to reach? Um, so, for example, like, global digital co- companies, they already have presence in some hard-to-reach places. Google is in Zimbabwe. They sponsor hackathons there. Microsoft have a headquarters in Johannesburg. Um, Facebook's Free Basics, it's available in Bangladesh, Pakistan, and 20 other countries. So, And they've also just laid 500 kilometers of internet cables in Uganda. So do you know of any other projects um, that you're aware of in Africa and India, and um, which international companies or organizations are leading those projects? Well, I think first thing to mention here would be the Chinese. Okay. So in terms of uh, in terms of like infrastructure development and mo- cheap mobile phone sets, I think the Chinese are leading. Yeah. You can, the last I read, you can get a phone for like quasi-smartphone for about 10 bucks in Kenya now. Yeah, yeah. Because the Chinese have been... Similar in Zimbabwe, yeah, actually. Yeah, so you can do it. So yeah. I think in terms of like the, some of the hardware infrastructure, a lot of the a lot of the kind of Chinese companies have... Uh, as a Finnish person, fondly remembering when the entire world used Nokia phones, <laughs> now it has unfortunately been the Chinese that have taken over yeah. the phones that are being used by the by the kind of most... Um, low low economic, economic segments. Yeah. So, I mean, there's two different types. Well, two, three, kind of quasi, but you have, uh, on the one hand, you have a lot of companies coming in, okay. as you mentioned, and yes. they, have, they have their research centers, uh, they have innovation labs, uh, very kind of, pro- the, I mean, the simple answer is that there's a whole untapped market that they want to get yes. into. Yes, yep. So there's a reason why Facebook wants to connect the world to its um, its kind of free service, so they yep. use Facebook and, and, yep. and that'll sustain their business models. And, and if that happens, then eventually you'll be able to sell ads and do some profit profit for populations that haven't been a part of it. Same with Google, same with Microsoft. I mean, Microsoft used to be known. They have gotten a more, become slightly better in terms of corporate practices, mm-hmm. but they used to do a lot of uh, quite aggressive uh, Windows marketing in, in countries like country like India at some point. Okay. So you get you provide free Windows, so then people get kind of, it's like platform, platform dependency and, and other things and try to yeah. get like Linux, which would be an open source in terms of getting them off and so yeah. it's not really in a way you're not you can't be really naive about it why yeah. the companies are there and then you have a lot of organizations both uh, NGOs and um, also this what they call INGOs which are UN major organizations who have their own innovation labs and so you have UN Global Pulse okay. which works out of Uganda so they do all kinds of trying to harness like computational big data stuff for for partially linked to their work, but also also kind of developing solutions that would be more appropriate. Right. Because these are the organizations that work in the development sector, and, and so their innovation is targeted towards kind of making that, that better. Okay. And research centers, so you do have a lot of quasi-company-funded quasi research centers and American universities who do work on things like liberation technology and Stanford and 
mm. all kinds of sustainable innovation labs and all okay. these things which are funded, which the whole idea is again. Again, slightly questionable. You can, I mean, I have my doubts about that by bringing um, a certain type of digital technology to uh, rest the world, uh, suddenly things will become, suddenly a lot of problems that exist will, will vanish automatically. And so there's a lot of that happening yeah. also in terms of like um, American tech comp- tech universities and other things working. And then you have a lot of domestic uh, organizations, companies as well, and they are also emerging. So there's, there's this kind of big infrastructure of innovation yeah. happening in a lot of places. And, and they are interestingly also clustered around certain centers. So Nairobi is a big one. And yeah, I think, I think yeah. Ghana is a big one. But of course, then you have uh, a lot of parts that are completely left out. Like if you go to like Chad or Central African Republic, yeah, exactly. almost nothing happening there. You don't hear about anything there. Yeah. So it's a, there's another kind of inequality in terms of even within that, that dynamic. But as you said about the corporations, because, you know, I also did have questions around like the motives behind their interest in being in these regions. Um, what what value is the data that's um, provided from their research or from serving adverts or from people using your platforms? What is the value of that data to them? So, I mean, the simple fact of a face, the Facebook business model is based on custom micro-targeting ads for consumers. And so the value is basically a, the what they call the bot, it's like the, there are different terms for it, bottom of the pyramid, the long tail, okay. the the next 500 million, whatever you want to call it. But the idea is that they'll eventually become quasi-consumerist and, right. and into the digital economy. So by being able to be there already involved, this just dominated the market in terms of being able to... Uh, what Facebook does is spend, sell sell ads and make a profit yeah. out of that, and while providing, of course, the service that they do, which uh, which is about people people communicating on the platform. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there's there's some philanthropist uh, motives, uh, but I think the primary motive still is it's uh, just commerce. It's basically untapped market, if you put it in a simple way. And I mean, again, both in good and bad. They they and Google the same, and all the other companies. So. I always feel quite disillusioned by the fact that, you know, all of these innovations is mostly serving, I don't know, just commerce, really, in the end. What other possibilities do you think could exist? So I guess it's good to also that even though it's serving commerce, it does have a lot of room for kind of digital development. Yeah. So by having the infrastructure there, people can do things. And so if you look at Mpesa, for instance, it is it is a com- commercial enterprise. It's not, yeah, it's not yeah. meant to be a... So the kind of I could call side effect or the 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 consequence of that model also leads to all kinds of new ideas, ideas of digital development, which sure. is not necessarily a bad thing. So yeah. I don't think the doom and gloom is... because. So there has been a lot of, in terms of alternatives, there have been a lot of examples of more state-led initiatives. Yeah. So Ethiopia... For a long time, they tried to do their own state-led uh, kind of infrastructure based on education and kind of connecting villages and stuff like that. And it was, I mean, it, it worked for a while, but again, it wasn't a grand success because what the big companies do, they have the resources and the technical yeah. knowledge to do it much more effectively. Yeah. So there's there's this kind of double-edged sword about it that the governments are not really capable of doing things at such scale. 
Right. And so effectively because they don't have the money nor the resources. Yeah. But then the companies can do it. But then obviously that the comes with the, the host of problems that you have to be at least cognizant about. Yeah. But I think it's interesting that people are now at least talking about yeah. all these things much more than they did before. And you speak about... Um, resources and you know training what sort of what sort of i don't know what sort of um hubs or training or skills um should be or can be disseminated like in these hard to reach regions just to encourage you know technology and innovation and you know creating different things So there is again again a double-edged sword, and uh, knowing Nairobi quite well, there's a whole startup infrastructure that has yeah. emerged that is also creating solutions that are much more catered or customized to local needs. Yes, and so mobile-based applications, so things yeah. things like um, creating apps for Matatu systems or all these things. So there's I mean there's a lot of stuff like that happening. You have organizations like iHub and um, and other organizations that have been trying to lead the way f- of creating a very local local ecosystem for innovation. Yeah. So it's again a question of where because uh, that's still very urban. So the startup yeah. culture is still very urban. They might create solutions that are more catered towards the the rural communities yeah. but so once you go beyond the threshold of uh, not having literacy I think uh, the digi- mm. digital stuff is maybe a bit premature just get them get them learn how to read first so maybe just give them books no, you, that's don't, true. you don't need to get them a fancy tablet so And then once they have this, they have the literacy and books and other things. Then, then you might want to think, oh, maybe they should learn how to code next. So, that is true. I mean, actually, I hadn't. You're right. I hadn't thought about literacy because, like in Zimbabwe, we have a very high um, rate of literacy generally in Southern Africa, about um, 89 to 90%. Yeah, I mean, so, I, I, you are right, but that hadn't been my first consideration. So, okay, if you do have the literacy um, levels up, which, yeah, it goes without say, to be honest. Um, what other, are there any programs that are happening or? I mean, there's a lot of youth employment programs and, uh, and uh, again, it's a, You have to be slightly skeptical that just by learning how to code, you will suddenly solve solve the problem of youth employment yeah. in different places. And like, like my friend of mine who works in the startup startup ecosystem in India, he's just joking that now that for instance, a artificial intelligence will come, so it'll just it'll just get about two hundred million people lose their jobs because the jobs that they have been doing is not really the creative edge of yeah it's more about just the kind of grunt work that needs to be done yeah so again it's that fact that you can code might not be necessarily the only way to think about it but i mean is there certain kind of creative use of digital technology or digital possibilities for for leapfrogging some of the some of the kind of infrastructural problems yeah. and um, if if combined with a good strategy i think rwanda has been quite progressive in terms of what they have been doing and despite its uh, minor political politi- <laughs> political issues but uh, at the same time they have been quite good in trying to develop a more more kind of stateless strategy of how to how to use digital technology as a part of the part of the infrastructure yeah and part of the development so it's again very case by case because countries are so different and at such level, of, uh, level yeah. of kind of um, infrastructure and uh, human capital that is true and um Finally, let's talk about hard infrastructure. So Africa has fewer legacy systems or tech precedents. So you spoke about um, M-Pesa, which I think is something that 
was a creative use of technology that emerged from that. Um, India is advancing much faster. I was reading about um, there are several billion dollar startups um, and they have 450 million smartphone users so there's high uh, mobile penetration what are the possibilities for alternative forms of the internet and other digital solutions in hard to reach uh, regions such as blockchain and such and Mm. sorry before you speak can you just go closer to your microphone yeah Yeah. okay thank you so uh, I will go in reverse so I think Blockchain uh, may be a bit premature to go into. A, there's possibility in terms of the decentralized structure, mm-hmm. but it's so kind of cutting edge that uh, I don't see it, see it necessarily being popularized for the time being in terms of development. There are there are ways of doing it, then, but it has to probably happen first that it becomes much more widely widely adopted. Yeah. So they do experiments in blockchain, but it tends to be run by. Um, certain kind of technologists or hackers who are based out of Europe or the US and they will go and and so uh, but yeah, I mean, it's getting there there'll be new things happening we don't know exactly what the level of disruption is, will be because uh, there's a lot of hype around it yeah but it could change change the kind of uh, way things are developed so I think the question about hard infrastructure has a lot of components yeah so um, I mean I started off from returning back to basics so we don't need to go all the way to block- blockchain we can go to electricity Right. So you can have things like uh, systematic and sustained electri- electricity and internet connection, which should be a, something that is still lacking in most places. Yeah, yeah. To have fast internet connection, even or mobile connection. Yeah. So, part like in Ethiopia, there are parts that you will have to walk for a day to get your mobile connection just just to make a phone call. So, wow. again, so we are still yeah. far away from uh, yeah. going all the way to blockchain or. Right. or whatever the latest stuff is there. Yes. So then a lot of the stuff is being developed and uh, so then it comes down first infrastructure to give basic uh, basic access. And so if people would have basic internet access, then you can start building on top, yeah, of, yeah. on top of that because then it opens up the next level of doing things. So I think one thing that is also interesting, important to mention is that how the internet is increasingly being centralized Okay. and also at the hardware level. So a lot of the kind of new services like that are being used like Amazon Web Services and, yeah. and Google and other things. So they are based out of servers that are, because that's where the traffic is catering most of the European and maybe Chinese market. Yeah. So again, there's this kind of infrastructure gap between what happens in, uh, so technically you can link stuff from uh, rural Kenya to an Amazon server, but there are so many steps of the way that it's actually can be a very slow connection. So even in even in yeah. that kind of that kind of so there are all, all kinds of imbalances. So, so you're I, saying that they would need to have their servers on the continent. What I would like to see would be, and which might be in terms of hardware development, that you would have local companies that would start setting up local hubs. Okay. And this kind of decentralized model potentially would be more, at least in the beginning stages, a more sustainable way of going forward. Is that costly to set up? So, I mean, if you have businesses, it wouldn't be, I mean, it could happen. So it's it's a question of scale. So they haven't been able to do it because the the big companies do it do it much uh, cheaper. Yeah. But I mean, things like peer-to-peer networks. So you can have connections between villages without actually having to link to the internet. Okay. So there are all How kinds. How does that work? So you create, cre- you create a kind of decentralized network between 
between different people having, for instance, so if you're in a very tightly populated location, you can just do it by the phones. Okay. And you just need one contact point, the internet, and it kind of shares the internet across um, different things. So if you are more distributed, you have to send like nodes where you can link. link. So you can start creating a more decentralized architectures mm -hmm. for connecting the internet, which might be more suitable for the geography. And yeah. and that, that part, instead of having this cloud-based um, system where you have everybody connecting to the server in somewhere in Europe or. Yeah. So there are ways and local companies could jump in and go on a good example and Okay, let's, they could set up the hubs for that. So, so if there was if there was interest in development, that would take away a lot of these imbalances or kind of global imbalances of how the infrastructure is being done, and it would take away the fact that you have to pull really expensive wires, so wires across uh, large large parts of land. So, yeah. and they are like in Ethiopia, the problem was they when they try to get wires to capital, the wires get stolen always. So, because you are dealing with like long tracts of land, and so yeah. there's so I mean, it's very kind of simple problems, but. Oh no, big problems. No, In Zimbabwe, the, they steal electricity wires. I no, can't exactly. tell you so, I mean, how that's the very frustrating kind of, that is on a daily <laughs> But that's the kind of rea basis. reality of it. Yeah, so yeah, again, yeah. if we think about it on a very abstract blockchain level, we're still kind of yeah, saying, okay, there are yeah. very, very basic things that need to be first, mm -hmm. first addressed. And, and then blockchain might provide a model for doing that, but uh, it's not necessarily... Well, there's a lot of talk about it in Africa with a few blockchain hubs like in um, South Africa. Mm. They have conferences in Nigeria and South Africa. So do you think it's just hype and talk then? Well, it's the, the way kind of digital development works is that it's both hype and both disruptive. Yeah. So uh, there is a lot of hype around it because the people who are talking about it need to be funded. Right. Yes. Old, of course, they accept, not exaggerate, but of course they believe in the ideas. And so we won't be able to know for the next uh, maybe in five years we can actually see what the consequence of that will be. Yeah. So yeah, no, it is being talked about a lot, and well, the reason why it's also being talked about in in the African context because it's a decentralized system. Yeah. Kind of what I mentioned. So you could do a peer-to-peer -peer internet network based on blockchain technology, and which would be one way of cutting cutting also the what you call the soft infrastructure problems. Problems, yeah. Because it's again a way of identifying people based on their their kind of unique identifier. But I do I haven't I haven't seen it very widely implemented mm. outside like uh, talked about in conferences and and saying that it's, it's the best, next big thing. But yeah. I'm still waiting to see that where it actually becomes yeah. really used. And now it's used mostly for Bitcoin markets, which are kind of like, I don't know exactly what how it goes up and down. And yeah, at yeah, one yeah. point you make millions and next time it collapses. And exactly. So it's yeah. very chaotic at this point. Do you have examples where peer-to-peer uh, -peer, like mobile connectivity is working really well? I don't know how I don't know I don't know how well it's working. So uh, there's an app called FireChat. FireChat. So yeah, sorry, <laughs> away from the microphone. There's an app called FireChat, which uh, was developed for the use in crowded concerts. Okay. So because when you have a big concert situation, the internet connection or the mobile connection becomes unreliable because of the mass of people. Yes. So it was a peer-to-peer -peer communication network based on like I think Bluetooth or you have, okay. to be, you have to be quite close to people, but it works in crowded situations. Yeah. So then it got picked up in Hong Kong where they used it in uh, the umbrella umbrella protests because the government tried to shut down the connection so they could still maintain communication mm. without having that actual connection to the internet. Yeah. So then the reason I'm just saying that I don't know because when I, when I was in Ethiopia the last time I was sitting in some cafe in the in the, the north of Addis in, in Piazza and I suddenly had my phone open I realized that they had a fire chat connection there. 
so I didn't know. I never had the time to go actually check if they use it widely. But yeah. I've seen it being. It, I've just seen signs of being used, but I haven't had the time to go explore more in detail. But again, so I suspect these are the things that we don't really know as much. You need people to go and uh, and look look and on the ground what, and yeah. what's, what's going on. Yeah. Because things change very quickly, so it might be something different in the next six months. And, and any other um, possibilities that you wanted to touch on before we end? You mean in terms of uh, the how the future is going to look and yes. uh, coming like massive predictions? <laughs> Anything you're excited about or interested in? So my one of the things, and once I have. Once, once, fingers crossed. Once I get a bit of time to start looking forward. Now I'm still looking, looking, kind of finishing, finishing old projects off. So I'm really interested in how artificial intelligence debates become refracted or become changed in in the context of countries like Ethiopia. Okay. And so they do have they have set up their first artificial incubation lab in Ethiopia. And in addition, they have set up, uh, there are some people who are trying to, again, change the debate for what would be appropriate for the local context. Yes. So that's something that I'm uh, slowly, increasingly getting interested in. And who set that up, the hub? It's it's kind of uh, computer scientists. I'm, I'm sure From Ethiopia. So I'm sure I didn't check. They must have some European funding because okay. that's how usually things happen. But yeah. But again, uh, so these things are now starting to pop up and, and starting to be increasingly popular everywhere so I'm interested not really again believing the hype but seeing how it becomes used in different ways and yeah. and what's going on so that's some, something would be quite interesting but yeah I mean there's a lot of stuff stuff is that's going on you just have to you don't really you don't really see it when you're when you're based in London so you're, you're quite yeah, you have disconnected to be from on it. the ground the, US, the UK and Europe is uh, light years behind like the, the, the cool innovative stuff so you don't really see, see much going on from here you need to be there. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Matty. A lot of uh, interesting insights to discuss there. Um, so you can learn more about Matty's work at www.mattypohjanen.com. That's M-A-T-T-I dash P-O-H j-o-n-e-n.com uh, for a view on how the internet is experienced globally and also how some countries are experiencing are creating their own versions of Google and Facebook read almost 50% of the world is online or what about the other 50% on the Guardian website for more on the opportunities and implications of tech corporations investing in developing countries read the Wall Street Journal article Facebook pushes into Africa you can read more about India's billion dollar tech stock Startups. In the Bloomberg article, India has already hit a record number of $1 billion startups this year. And the BBC article, Is Blockchain Living Up to the Hype? questions whether the Bitcoin revolution has come to fruition and some limitations of the technology. So um, you can find the SOAS Coding Club at www.soascodingclub.com. Follow us on Facebook at SOAS Coding Club and on Twitter at SOAS Coding Club. Thank you and see you all next week. Thank you.